yeah, be careful. We want to learn how to pray. But if, if, uh, if you wait for God to give us a reason to pray, sometimes it's like, uh, okay, you get a phone call. Your child is being taken by ambulance to a hospital and things are happening. And all of a sudden, you learn how to pray. You understand? Uh, that's, but we, that's not what this is about. That's, this is not about those, folk, those times where when we're forced to pray. This is about you and I just learning how to pray. So let's go through the acrostic, see if you can remember it. P-R-A-Y, it's been a long time since we did it. P is praise. Praise is not an easy concept for us. It's not. Praise is, it can involve thanksgiving, all right? But that's not really what praise is. Praise is not thank you for, that's not praise. Praise is talking to God about him. Usually when we pray, we talk to God about us. That's what we do, right? Uh, Lord, help me. Lord, give me this. Lord, do that. Uh, oh, and by the way, thank you. Amen. You know, I mean, and usually it's about us. And praise, uh, if I were going to praise my child, I wouldn't praise my child by telling my child how great I am, right? It's not about me. It's about my child. We understand how to praise other people. And that's literally what praise to God is. If you go through, through the uh, Psalms, you'll find Psalms of praise. And it's simply telling God who he is. Um, for instance, Psalm 139. O Lord, David, thou hast... There you go. He better know that when he's in my Bible class at IBC. So, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my doubt. Now, wait a minute. I'm telling God something he already knows, right? Do you think that God knows that he knows me? Oh, God, thou hast searched me and know me. Thou knowest my down, sitting, coming up. Do you think God knows that he knows me if I'm standing up, sitting down, walking, going, right? I'm telling God something about God. Oh, oh Lord, thou hast searched me and know me. Thou knowest my down, sitting, my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. It's all about God. What does praise do for the praiser? Because, hear me out, praise doesn't do anything for God. God is complete. He doesn't need my praise to complete him. Right? He needs nothing from me. But he wants me to praise him because praise does something for the praiser. Because as I'm saying, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me, I'm realizing that God knows me. And he searched for me. He searches out everything about me. He knows when I'm sitting, when I'm standing up. He knows my thoughts are far off. He knows the words that I'm about to speak before I speak them. There's not a word in my tongue, still in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Right? If I ascend up in heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there. So I'm telling God, you're everywhere present. Okay, God knows that. What does God care? But as I'm praising God, as I'm lifting him up for who he is, it dawns on me what that means to me. If God is everywhere present, 
and there's nowhere I could go to escape from God, then I need to deal with God rather than continue to run, right? And so praise is that first thing. If you want to go through 30 minutes of prayer, spend 10 minutes of time praising. And what the easiest way to do it, because we're not good at it, is to pick a psalm that praises God and, um, you know, let that praise then walk you through for 10 minutes. And what happens is, as we tell God how great and awesome his love for us is, his love begins to impact me in a new way. And I find by praising him, the higher I lift him up, the easier it is for me to submit to him. So spend some time praising God. R, repent, all right? Uh, we ought to repent. We ought to get our sins right. Now listen, we do not spend time repenting of our sins in order to be saved. Because the day you have trusted Christ, I was 16 when I got saved. Do you know how many times I had sinned in 16 years? I don't. You understand? I don't. There's no way I could, I could have enumerated every sin that I had done since, as, from a child and confessed that sin to God in order to be saved. We do not, the repentance of salvation is simply turning from where we are headed to God, and that is repentance, trusting him. But in 1 John chapter 1, as Christians, we are called upon to confess our sins for he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. So we're supposed to keep short accounts as Christians. There ought not to be 15, 20 years between repentance for us. We ought to be keeping short accounts. So, I mean, if each day I'm coming before the Lord and part of my, of my prayer is to repent, I only need to repent of the sins that I accomplished that day and I think back on the day or the last hour, or the last whatever, three hours, and I'm, I'm repenting. Spend some time in repentance. So in this, 15, in this 30 minutes of prayer, we have 10 minutes of praise. Spend five minutes in repentance. And that sounds like a long time. I'm not going to bore you with it. But if we were to sit here and tick off five minutes, it would seem tediously long to you. And I'm telling you, if you do this, you're going to start repenting, and you're going to think, wow, okay, I, I'm pretty much done. And, uh, and you're going to look down, and an hour and 47 seconds have passed. Or not an hour, I mean, a minute and 47 seconds have passed. And pastor said, five minutes. And what it does is it forces us to dwell on things. Because if I say, Lord, forgive me for losing my temper. Or, Lord, forgive me for hitting the wall. Or, Lord, forgive me for throwing that rock at my neighbor's house. I'm hoping you don't do these things. The point is, there's more than just the one thing that goes into that, right? Throwing the rock wasn't the only thing you did. It started back here four days ago when your neighbor did something, you know, threw grass over into your driveway and you've never kind of gotten over it. And then something else happened and it's all been building up. And so if we spend some time, we'll be able to dissect our, our sinful condition and repent more fully. So five minutes, it'll seem like an eternity. 
five minutes. P-R-A, ask. Asking is not wrong, all right? It's probably not, should not probably be the first thing we do in prayer. But it's not wrong. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. You have not because ye ask not. So God wants us to ask. So take 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and start asking again. You say, wow, you know, that's not much time. Okay, take 10 minutes and start asking. Because usually our asking sounds like this. We can get through our prayers pretty quick. Uh, Lord bless mom, Lord bless dad, Lord bless sis, Lord bless brother, Lord bless this food, amen. How many seconds did that take? It was a long way from 10 minutes, right? And so what we've got to do is stop being so shallow. If we want God to bless our kids, what blessings do we really want him to give? Lord, would you put a hedge of protection around my children and guard their minds so that when they're tempted to be drawn away from your care, that they would think about your word? I mean, take the blessing that you want to bestow on your kids and expand it and expand that blessing upon your wife and expand that blessing upon your job and your boss. And, and we're a little shallow in this department. Our asking is just that. We've kind of got our prayer list, right? Gimme, 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 do, 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 amen. And uh, we need to spend some time, 10 minutes. So we have now spent 25 minutes in prayer. We have five minutes more. What's the why? Yield, you do remember, all right. Yield. And that's the hardest one for us to get the concept first. But once we get the concept, then it's simply the hardest one to do. So, God, because you are everywhere present, I am going to submit yet another part of my life to you that I've been trying to hide. God, because you know everything about me, every thought in my heart, every word in my tongue before I ever speak it, I want to deal with this. I'm going to start doing this. Because, God, I have repented of this sin, I am now going to build a fence. Remember last year, last week, our fences? I'm now going to build a fence to keep myself away from that sin. This is my yielding. God, because I have asked you to save Uncle Ned, I am now going to witness to Uncle Ned next Tuesday. You see the idea? That's the yield. Because of these other three things that we've been praying about, now I'm going to spend five minutes in prayer telling God my plan as a result of these other things that have been happening, how I'm going to yield myself to these other things. So learning how to pray. It's the very practical side of our Christianity. Uh, do, do we know how to pray? And are, are we waiting for those horrific events that drive us to our knees and then hoping we've figured out how to pray so that God can actually respond to our prayers? Let's, right now, learn how to pray. Verse 7. So we go on now, verse 8. Look what it says. And above all things, when I think of the word fervent, what does fervent mean to you? Give me, give me a, a definition for fervent. Say it again. Intense. I like that word. Intense. So that it's, it's dealing with the intensity of. Would you agree? So it says fervent what? Charity. And that word charity is love. So God wants us to intensify 
our love, our compassion, our concern for other people, for him and his word, to, to have this fervency brought into our, our love. So it says, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Now listen, hear me out. What, what washes away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is not telling me how to get rid of sin. That's not what this is about. We get rid of sin through repentance. We already did that in prayer. That's putting it under the blood. So what does this mean then that charity covers my sin or covers sin? What, is, what are we talking about here? Ah, listen up. You know, I may have offended Brian several times this week. But because he loves me intensely, he's able to get past it. You understand? I can get, and the, the more passionately I am about my concern and care for someone else, the easier it is for me to deal with whatever offenses they throw my way, right? So if, as we intensify our charity, then the offenses become not so much less, but meaningless, right? They, they mean less. That's the idea. So if we will focus on our charity intensity, then we can actually make it easier to live with, you fill in the blank, right? Whoever it is, because that's what love does. That's what charity does. It makes it easy for us then. For instance, um, most of us, there's very little that our kids could do that would cause us to ever quit loving them, right? And in fact, it's beyond that. There's very little our kids can do that ever offends us so much that we walk away saying, you know, I'm done. We're always drawn back. You know why? Because that's what charity does. And, and we, our, our love for our children, it's intense. And as we have love one for another, and so here he is, he says, you know, do this. Have, above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Now here's the part that applies to this morning. And I'm going to give you kudos for this morning. And here's the principle. Look at verse 9. Use hospitality one to another. Now, that was seen this morning. Now, what I don't know is if the next part of the verse still fulfills it. I think this morning we were golden. I don't know that we're always golden. It says, use hospitality. But what is the last rest of that thing? Without grudging. I'm going to give up my seat because it's Easter, and Pastor made me feel like I have to. But wait till next week. I'm getting my spot back. <laughs> Use hospitality without grudging, right? I mean, this is, this is the growth step of our spiritual walk. It starts by, I'm going to do it because I'm told to do it. But the ultimate is, as our charity is intensifying that it becomes much easier to give off the grudging. It actually becomes a joy to 
express hospitality, right? Because our charity has intensified, and hospitality no longer becomes a burden. It ought not to be a burden. You know, our, our, and, and it won't be a burden if we actually intensify our love. But if we keep our love down here, we can't expect our hospitality to surpass it, right? It's always going to reflect, our hospitality is always going to reflect where we are in our love one for another. Um, your, uh, your 89-year-old mama walks into the living room and you have absolutely no problem with giving her your seat to watch the game, Right? But let your kids get to your seat before you. You're like, there's a grudging that happens, right? I'm, I'm just trying to show you something. Why? Because, you know, you have intensified your love to your mother. And it's very easy to be hospitable to her. And to bend over backwards to meet her needs, to take care of her, to love her, that's what we do. As we intensify our, our, our love one for another, hospitality just kind of falls into place. It comes right along beside. So it says to use hospitality, but don't do so grudgingly. Verse 10, as everyone, every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. Now, um, we're talking about the gifts here. Uh, we could go through Romans chapter 12, those specific gifts that God gives, right? The gifts of teaching, the gifts of ministering, uh, the gifts of administration, those things. We can go through, uh, I don't remember the chapter uh, in Corinthians. We could go through the Galatians passage of the fruits of the Spirit. But you know that God has given us gifts. Some of those gifts might be in the form of a talent, that's true. But most of them are spiritual gifts that we just have been empowered by God to accomplish. Now here in this passage, he's trying to tell us, he's, he's, here's what practical Christianity looks like, Right? It starts with praying, being taking things seriously, praying, uh, being fervent in our love one for another, using hospitality, and then take the gifts that God has given to you and put them to work in the body. It, it's, it's not hard. Practical Christianity is very practical. God has gifted you for a reason. And the reason is not self-serving. He didn't give us gifts so that we can do the things that we want. It's not about us. Our, our love is outward, our you know, focus is outward, and so we take these gifts and we minister to the body. So here he is in verse 10, as every man hath received the gift. By the way, let's focus there for just a second. What has every man received? Don't sit here and say, well, I just don't have anything. No, that's not true. It is simply not biblical. You do have a gift from God. Every one of us who calls, calls the name of Christ, every one of us has received a gift. Our job is to recognize the gift and then to put it to work. So as everyone has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This is what we're supposed to do. And then lastly, in verse 11, we'll be done. All right, verse 11, the last opportunity we have here to live out our Christian life in a practical way. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, wait a minute. 
it, is this talking about every time I open my mouth? Or is it like if any man preaches? What do you think? Say it again. It's talking about both. You understand this? If you have opportunity to speak, you better be speaking. But it is also talking to us. In a, remember Ephesians chapter 4 says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, to be ministered grace into the hearer. So here we have this. If, if we're going to speak, especially if we're going to speak publicly, if, we're gonna, if we have an opportunity to speak to people about Jesus, then we need to speak as the oracle of God. So if I'm supposed to speak as a pastor, as if God is speaking, if I'm supposed to go to work tomorrow, school tomorrow, I have jury duty tomorrow, by the way, so if I go to jury duty tomorrow, as I'm speaking, I am supposed to speak as the oracle of God, right? So how do I do that? How do I speak as if God himself is speaking? Speak the word. Now, that doesn't mean you always have to quote it, but it does mean that what we say needs to be scriptural, right? I mean, think this through. Let, we are to speak truth, right? Because the truth sets people free. But we are to speak the truth. We're not supposed to be speaking in lies. You know, uh, um, I've said this to you many times. I'll just say it another time. God is not a God of rights. As Americans, we get stuck on our rights. And we have freedom of speech as a right, but not as a Christian. We don't have freedom of speech. I can't lie. I'm, it's a forbidden. I'm forbidden to lie, right? I'm supposed to speak the truth. But beyond that, when I'm speaking the truth, I'm supposed to speak the truth a certain way, in love. And beyond that, that truth that I'm supposed to speak has a purpose, which is to minister grace into the hearer. And no corrupt words are to come out of my mouth. I do not have free speech as a Christian. I'm supposed to speak as the oracles of God. So if we're talking about the game and if we're talking about the weather and if we're talking about spiritual things, it ought to be still fulfilling these, these things, right? I would speak the truth, not a lie. I would speak that truth in love. I would be speaking with a purpose if I'm talking about a game or if I'm talking about whatever, I'm still supposed to be edifying, ministering, helping the other person. I mean, these, I'm not off the hook for any of these things. I am ordered by God when I speak to speak as the oracles of God, as someone who's speaking in God's stead. And uh, that's a huge statement, but it's given to all of us. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this word minister is not talking about being a pastor, although I will tell you that I had a little guy say to me just tonight before the service, and this just melted my heart. I won't put him on the spot because he's sitting out here. He says, Pastor, one of these days I'm going to be a pastor just like you. Woo! <laughs> And I'm like, that touches my heart. The flip side of that is, please be a better pastor than I am, please. <laughs> so you get the idea. Um, but this concept of minister is to serve. If we're out there serving, it's that Romans chapter 12 when it lists the gifts that we're given. 
that minister is one who just simply serves. And when we serve, we have a purpose. And look what it says here. So if, we're going, if we serve, uh, if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. So the idea is that, well, uh, you know, for instance, I've never felt like that God called me to pastor 5,000 people for two reasons. One, we're not a church of 5,000 people, right? If we were a church of 5,000 people, I might have to deal with that differently. But I'm just being honest with you. I don't know. I, I, when is a church too big? And I don't know that there's a, a right answer to this, but somebody gave me this answer once. I thought it was a good answer. It says that Jesus knows his sheep by name. And as the under-shepherd, I am a reflection of Christ. And so when, you know, some people could minister to a church of a thousand people and keep tabs on all of them. I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I could actually have relationship with everybody and do what I feel like I'm called to do as a pastor. But I also would have said when the church was 100, I don't think I could pastor 200 people, and now here we are, a church that has 300 people pretty regularly. So um, God gives his grace. God gives the ability as the ability is needed perhaps. But what ability we have, we're supposed to use that. So don't be looking at somebody else and say, well, I can't do that. That's not your point. You're not even called upon to do that. I'm not called upon to minister to 5,000 people. I'm called upon to minister to this church. That's where God's put me, right? And so I ought to minister to my ability. And that doesn't mean I'm a lesser person than somebody over there. It doesn't mean that they're a lesser person than I am because, you know, they can do 5,000 and I feel like I have to have a more intimate relationship. That doesn't, there's not a lesser, it's to the ability that God has given us. And so we minister. So whatever ability God's given you, put it to work for the Lord. And when all of this is done, practical Christianity lives out. Look at the end of the verse and we're finished. It says that God in all things may be glorified. When all is said and done, living out Christianity in a practical way glorifies our God. Heads bowed, eyes closed.